Welcome to episode 110 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is Lawrence Kotlikoff, author and economics professor at Boston University. But first, my apologies for going dark the last few months. A lot has happened. My elder daughter was married. My wife and I moved from San Diego and sold our house and most of our possessions. That was hard. We traveled a bit, and we are finally back. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. In addition to his role at Boston University, Lawrence is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, fellow of the Econometric Society, research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research, president of Economic Security Planning, Inc., and director of the Fiscal Analysis Center. He's written 19 books and hundreds of professional articles and op-eds. He's a New York Times bestselling author and a frequent television and radio guest. His columns have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, the Boston Globe, Bloomberg, Forbes, Yahoo.com, Fortune, and other major publications. In 2014, The Economist named him one of the world's 25 most influential economists. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Krivat, and I'm here with Lawrence Kotlikoff, author and professor at Boston University. Lawrence, welcome to The Climate Champions. Thanks for having me, Lee. Great pleasure. With regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment? What was it that made you feel like you had to do something about climate change? I've been concerned about how we're treating future generations for over 40 years. I wrote a book called The Coming Generational Storm and another one called The Clash of Generations. These were uh, co-authored with Scott Burns. So I've been the, I would say, the most outspoken of economists in terms of looking at the impact of America's fiscal policy on future generations. So my orientation concerning how we're treating future generations has been uh, longstanding. And I realized in looking at the economics literature on climate change and talking about this with people like Jeff Sachs, an old friend of mine, that the entire framework for how we're looking at climate change in terms of the economic analysis modeling is really screwed up fundamentally. I'm a really big fan of Bill Nordhaus, who got the Nobel Prize for his work in uh, climate you know, economics. But the framework that he used, which all the other economists who've written major papers in this area have followed, is really entirely inappropriate for analyzing the problem. And I don't say that lightly. <laughs> he took us down by the choice of his framework down the wrong path uh, into a generational war because he set up a framework in which he would kind of invoke a social planner, some economic god who would come to earth and decide what's the optimal carbon tax policy. Now, the social planner comes to earth and then has preferences that Nordhaus posited about 
how he wants to treat current versus future generations. So Nordhaus's economic god is not just focused on economics, he's focused on really morality. And economics doesn't have anything to say about morality. So Nordhaus's god cares a certain amount about future generations, but what he did is he opened up an opportunity for other economists to invoke their own gods, bring their gods down to have their own preferences and come up with an entirely different answer about what the optimal climate policy should be based on putting more weight on future generations relative to what Nordhaus placed. Nordhaus's social planner, his economic god, was placing. And then you have other economists who are less concerned about future generations, so they invoke gods who were less concerned. So we have religion, in effect, intermixed with economics. Now, I push for Bill Nordhaus. You know, I was one of the many tens of thousands of people, surely, who wrote to the Nobel Prize Committee and said, give him the Nobel Prize. So I want to just be clear that I'm a huge fan of his work. And that even if he used the wrong framework, it doesn't mean he didn't deserve getting the Nobel Prize for starting the entire the field. But what was lacking up to a couple of years ago when I started working with my co-authors, Andre Polbin, who's a Russian economist, and Felix Kubler, who's a German economist at the University of Zurich, and uh, Simon Scheidegger, who's an economist at Lausanne University of Swiss. So the four of us have now written three papers. Uh, we're working on a fourth and a fifth paper. And what we're doing is we're reintroducing the economics approach to what's called externalities. When somebody does something bad that helps them but hurts somebody else and doesn't take that into account, that's called an externality. And current generations are burning fossil fuels, and that's harming future generations. That's a negative externality. And the, the economic approach to any externality is to figure out how to get the person causing the damage or the entity, the parties causing the damage, to understand the cost at the margin to face a cost. That's where the carbon tax comes in. That's the right idea to have a carbon tax. But then economics says, let's leave morality out of this. Let's take the gains from fixing the problem and share them so that nobody gets hurt because there are economic gains to fixing the problem. Let's spread those gains across everybody. And now we've got a situation where we're saying, look, here's a solution where nobody is hurt. It's not like we're going to... Uh, make current generations worse off to help future generations because this particular economic god just loves future generations and hates current generations or vice versa. No, it's neutral on that because everybody's better off. That's how you analyze an externality in economics. And Nordhaus came from a tradition of macroeconomics. I'm trained in public finance. So when I was looking at this over the years, saying this is not the appropriate way to study this problem. So we wrote several papers now looking at a carbon policy that would raise everybody's welfare uniformly across the world, not just now, but in the future by the same amount. So we figured out what that uniform welfare gain is, and it's about four and a half percent. And that's like being able to consume four and a half percent more consumption every year throughout your life for every human being on the planet, now and through time. We can have cross payments across generations and across regions, that's what we talked about in the paper, that can leave us, plus the carbon tax through time, leave us all uniformly better off. 
it sounds like you have a God also, and your God is the one where you want everybody to benefit equally. See, my preferences about how to treat current and future generations aren't really coming into that, into our analysis, because we're saying, as soon as you have a policy reform where somebody's worse off, and you're saying this is a good thing to do, then you're introducing morality. But if you say, look, nobody's going to be hurt, everybody's going to be uniformly better off, this is one solution. Now, we have other solutions that are what are called Pareto improving, where nobody is hurt and everybody's better off. But it could be that current generations aren't hurt at all, but all the gains of fixing this problem are given to future generations. That's another solution. But we thought we would focus on this uniform gain to get across the idea that nobody has to be hurt here because Nordhaus has gotten across the idea that somebody has to sacrifice to help future generations. That's exactly antithetical to basic public finance uh, understanding of how to deal with an externality. Let me put it this way. If you took Nordhaus's framework and we had no carbon policy, the social planner that Nordhaus is invoking would come to earth and would impose a carbon tax in order to redistribute to the people he likes or she likes. She may love future generations, so she would tax current generations with a carbon tax in order to redistribute to future generations, not because there was a carbon problem, just because she likes those people in the future. So he's got that part mixed in with the issue of the damage from carbon, the inefficiency of of damaging future generations. So there's a missing market here. This is the real essence of the problem here. The missing market is that future generations cannot pay current generations to not damage the climate. If they were around today to negotiate with current generations, they would make a deal. And when we make deals in the marketplace, everybody's better off. So there's an inefficiency here. There's a missing market, a missing major market. And that's what policy can fix. When you're addressing an externality through economic policy, you're trying to say, what would the injured parties and the injuring parties agree to if they could sit down together, if, they could, if that market were here? And then you just replicate that with policy. Do you have personal drivers that make you even more care about this topic? Well, I have a 31-year-old uh, son and a 23-year-old son. A daughter-in-law who's uh, 31 and her husband's young and they have a new year, a new uh, newborn. So all these things, I guess, are personal drivers. We want to make sure that everybody's kids are going to be safe in the future. But our grandkids, our great grandkids, everybody through time, we we're the fiduciaries for future generations. We have to understand that this is our responsibility. Now I'm talking morality. Okay. But if we have people that are not all that oriented towards being concerned about the future, I mean, generations, they're, they're going to say, well, what are they going to do for me? Well, the point is they can do a lot for us right now, which is they can make us better off right now. If we impose a carbon tax, we can then cut other taxes. This is what our research is showing, cut other taxes so that on balance, we're about four and a half percent better off. And obviously, if we're facing more expensive gas at the pump, uh, that makes us worse off. But if we had much lower income taxes or payroll taxes right now, on balance, we could be four and a half percent better off. And then we leave, accumulate a bigger debt 
and we leave that for future generations to pay. Now, how does that make them better off? Well, by having the carbon tax, we make the climate, you know, uh, we, we have less carb carbon concentration, there's less damage to the, to the planet, and they're better off, but they have, you know, because of that, they're worse off because they have to pay off the, this bigger debt. And on balance, they're four and a half percent better off. So that's the deal that we're focused on in the paper. And these papers, by the way, are at my website at kotlikoff.net. So anyone can go and click on articles, search for carbon, and they'll see three papers on carbon taxation. So what I hear you saying, and please correct me, is that the future generations, to some extent, are screwed a bit in that either they're going to have major carbon problems, major weather problems, major weather events, or we're going to do something about it. And if we do something about it, then they're going to have debt to pay because it's going to cost something to do something about it. No, no, they're not going to be screwed because they're going to be better off on balance. Okay, they are screwed right now. Right now, there's a certain path of welfare, which is really crappy for them. So what I'm proposing is something that's better for them compared to the status quo, which is where we're heading. Yeah, the status quo is really, really bad. But financially, they're going to be under a greater weight than if we could solve it by spending our money today instead of their money tomorrow. Yeah, but that's where economics does not have an answer. If you go to the church, they'll not have an answer they'll tell you, but then you go to a different church or a different priest or a different rabbi uh, or imam, they'll all have their own answer. Go to Bill Nordhaus, he'll have his God. We're not going to get anywhere that way. If we follow the policy that that's coming out of this paper, all generations would benefit across the planet through time, and we would eliminate a huge part of the carbon damage. That's what's shown in the paper. It's not just that we're helping future generations a bit. We're, we are eliminating, for example, the, the optimal carbon tax policy entails shutting down coal production almost across the globe within about 20 years. So it's a pretty, pretty significant impact on policy, much beyond what is now being contemplated, I believe, because what's now being contemplated is basically doing nothing, pretending we're doing something having these countries pledge to do something. But if you, if you give countries 20 years to fix things, you say you have to hit some target in 20 years, the oil companies, the coal companies, gas companies are going to say, hey, it's use it or lose it. Let's pump like crazy. Let's mine like crazy. Let's burn like crazy because we're going to have these assets that are basically worthless in a while, stranded assets. So let's use them up. In economics, we call that the green paradox, policy that actually makes things worse off. And I think that's really, in large part, what the Paris Accord has done. It's given countries too much time and led to dirty energy producers having an incentive to be bad in the short run. Well, it's a double whammy because not only are they going to use their assets, they're going to burn, baby, burn. But the sooner that we put it in the atmosphere, the sooner it causes issues and it just stays there. So I agree with you. We don't want to incent people to create more greenhouse gases in the short term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The papers take into account the whole green paradox effect. They understand that if you 
it's figuring out the optimal time path of the carbon tax. And the, the, the beauty of this um, very elaborate model is that it, it knows in searching for the optimal path of the carbon tax, that if it delays increasing the carbon tax or setting a carbon tax, that will have these negative impacts. So that's fully incorporated. This thing is a really smart machine. It's kind of like big blue that can beat any human on IBM's supercomputer that was able to that is now able to beat any human in chess. It can think through all the future moves in chess, or not all of them, but enough of them. And here we've got something that's kind of in its own way equally powerful to help us figure out what to do. I think the tough part of it is for all countries to do that because it's not enough just for the U.S. The U.S. needs to obviously set an example, but others have to follow suit. Well, yeah, but we have a solution where everybody in China is going to, everybody now in China, everybody's going to be born tomorrow, next year, whatever. They're all going to be better off by four and a half percent. Why wouldn't the Chinese go for that? So let's suppose that Greta Thunberg, who had come to the UN and had basically lambasted the delegates there, telling them that they were immoral. That's all fine. You know, we are immoral. The fact that we're doing this to our kids, that's immoral. But suppose she had said, look, you people are inhuman, whatever, but we're going to cut a deal with you. Put on a carbon tax, lower your other taxes, leave us the debt to pay. This will still leave us better off. And we will, as a result, eliminate most of the carbon problem. And everybody will be better off. You selfish people, you'll be better off by 4.5%. We'll be better off by 4.5%. It's a win-win, uniform win-win. Why would anybody object? Why would China object? They wouldn't. So if she were just to go back to the UN and read a speech that I would write for her, we could get this thing fixed. We could get even Donald Trump, the great deal maker, the supposed great deal maker, to agree to this because he would benefit. Maybe he would stop lying about carbon problems and climate change and realize that, hey, there's a risk that my kids and grandkids and future generations are actually going to. That's the other thing we focused on one of these papers, which is what if there's no damage in the future really from carbon on average? But what if there's a, a risk here that there could be and it, it could be positive damage and negative damage? But the downside risk is much worse than the upside risk. The upside risk is just gravy, right? But we're much more concerned about the downside than the upside. So what we show in one of these papers on my website, kotlikoff.net, is that just because of the risk, not because of the average damage, because we set that to zero in the model, just because of the risk, you want to have a high carbon tax. You want to ensure future generations against what might happen. And they benefit. And because they benefit, you can take some of that benefit and give it to yourself. Okay. And that, that tax, you know, just for to deal with the risk can actually be larger than, uh, you know, even if, if you had no risk, but you knew for sure there was a pretty significant damage. The risk, since the risk could be kind of unbounded, that tax could actually be higher than in a situation where you had no risk, but what people expect to be the damages. I hope I'm getting this across. You are. I, I just still see it, and you haven't convinced me otherwise of this, that the benefit of future generations, their 4.5%, comes in that there won't be very expensive weather events that they have to constantly spend money trying to survive. Like Their benefit 
isn't going to be more money because they're going to have a lot of debt to pay off. And I think that that's still a good deal. So if you're saying that, I agree with you because it's better to have a future, even if there's more monetary issues, than not having a future at all because we've set the earth spinning wrong. That's exactly what I'm saying. If we're helping ourselves to help them, that's better than not helping them at all. Because not helping them at all is leaving, leaving them at enormous risk, as well as just average expected damage. That's huge. Aren't we already doing that to some extent? Because we are spending a lot more money than we're taking in right now. Like the infrastructure bill, Build Back Better. I mean, it's all about, a lot of it is about climate change investment. And we're not really collecting the taxes that can pay that back, which is a bet on the future, I believe, in order to help solve climate change. Well, I think, you know, some part of current policy could be viewed as uh, adhering to what we're proposing. But the basic concern is that this way of thinking about the problem, uh, about this being a win-win for everybody through time across the world, has not been conveyed. That economists have set up a, a generational war, a morality play here. And they've pitted uh, generations against each other, but also regions against each other. Whereas if we pose it the way economics actually says to, to pose it, to, to explain the problem and deal with the problem, work the problem correctly, then there's no controversies. There's no generational conflict. There's no regional conflict. Everybody gains. If you're in a room and you say, look, we can do something that's going to make everybody in this room, 100 people in the room, better off by 5%. Nobody's going to be worse off. And how many people are in favor of that? Show me your hands. All 100 people will raise their hand. And nobody's going to get up and say, well, I could do, you know, I want these people to get nothing and me to get 20% increase uh, because they'll look bad, which they would be. So that's the kind of situation where we've got an opportunity here. So the U.S. cannot go it alone. One of the things we show in the papers, China is so essential to get on board here. And if you say, look, we've got our differences, but let's sit down and make everybody better off. And this may involve side payments to regions. So Russia may end up, it does end up getting compensated because climate change would be a good thing for Russia. They, Siberia would warm up and they could use a, do a lot of things with Siberia. So they need to be compensated. Canada needs to be compensated as well because these are the two regions that would be better off uh, were we to do, to do nothing through time. So you compensate them, it's no big deal. But they put on a carbon tax in Canada and in Russia, and it's the same carbon tax we have worldwide. Before you went into the international spiel, here's what I got out of this. Okay, first of all, I believe we have to have a carbon tax. And the reason is, and I think you'll agree, I think I'm agreeing with you, is that we have to make it bad to put more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. That's the, right. And bad, the only translation that everybody understands when we say bad is money. And that means some kind of tax, some kind of penalty. Right. If you want to put more in the atmosphere, you have to pay. And that will encourage you to invest in other technologies. And so we will hopefully have a lot less because people will, will want to avoid that tax. So I'm with you. I think what your plan does, and you've gotten there in an economist way, but it still sounds like a marketing plan. And here's why I'm saying that. Because it sounds good. It sounds like, yeah, we're going to put a 5% or a 3% carbon tax out there. It's going to cost you 3%. But hey, you're going to get 4.5% back in other tax relief. So you get paid. So it's a good tax. Well, a carbon tax is a good tax because it's introducing, in effect, a market 
It's doing what would happen in our market. If, if I'm a future generation, you're a current generation, I would pay you at the margin not to pollute. You would face at the margin this tax where you to pollute, you would lose my compensation. So that would be a, an implicit tax. So I'm not here to deal with you. So the government is making that marginal consideration occur through the carbon tax. I think people might say, well, this, this is just a cold, hard economics and it's just immoral for us to be doing any of this. Well, it is, but we're doing it, okay? Plus, we have to get all the nations in the world on board. So we need to have side payments between regions. So this is the formula for doing it. The bottle is calculating exactly what has to happen. So you're saying we should pay people to reduce their carbon yes. and not just not just stick them, but carrot them as well. Ah, oh, that's what I'm hearing. We have to carrot as well as stick. And I agree with you. If I'm from the future 100 years, maybe I don't even exist. So I'm certainly coming back and I'm saying, do whatever you have to do. Pay people, take whatever scheme you want. You must find a way to incent people to reduce their greenhouse gas production. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that just makes all the sense in the world. Economics is really good when it's done right. Unfortunately, the climate economists have taken us down a, a path uh, that has no connection to economics, basically. It's all, it's all been kind of a religion wrapped in economics. My daughter will say, let's just spend whatever money it takes and let's borrow. It doesn't matter. We have to get past this because she wants to exist and she wants, if she has children, she wants them to have that kind of a world. And I say to her, well, the money just isn't magic. You can't just print up money. But in essence, the three of us are triangulating in a common direction. And that is, we really need to spend whatever it takes. And if that means print money or borrow money from the future, we have to do it. Yeah, up to a limit. I mean, we could uh, borrow so much. Let's say we were to cut all, all our taxes to zero, apart from the carbon tax. That would leave future generations with a terrible economy. And uh, they would not be 4.5% better off. They would be better off without the, <laughs> without the policy at all, without the carbon tax. So we have to make sure that this is done correctly. And that's why this modeling that I've done with my colleagues is so powerful. It's getting the right answer. So the three of us would say, if we weren't economists, there were no economists among us, let's go find an expert to figure this out. And then we'd come to me <laughs> and my colleagues, and we'd, we'd figured it out. You know, I'm not an egocentric guy, and I don't need any extra kudos in my day, okay? I'm 71, and uh, this is not going to make or break my career. But this is the, the work we've done is by far and away the most important analysis of carbon taxation that's been done on the planet up to this point. And I hope people will take a look at it at kotlikop.net. There's no other real fundamental large-scale model of optimal carbon taxation out there <laughs> to begin with, and let alone one that's done properly. So we, everybody in the carbon focus on, on the climate should be reading these papers and spreading this information. This, this is good news. <laughs> and then we should be having an international conversation about a policy that can then make us all better off. We all have it in our mind that we're not going to do this because it's going to make us worse off. That's nuts. It's going to make us better off financially and the future will be better off because they'll yes. have a world they can live in. Absolutely. Yes. So you've put forth 
a very interesting model and I see the benefit of it. But when you look forward 10, 20, 30 years, what do you think is actually going to happen? Are we as a planet going to make it? I think I'm an optimist. Uh, I'm a pessimist about how we're behaving, but I'm an optimist about policy working. And I think that uh, I have a an ability to communicate with you and others uh, that we do have a solution. We do have a global solution that everybody can get on board on. And I think that what we're proposing will start getting attention. I've talked to the EPA, presented the papers to the IMF, to the European Central Bank. Uh, I'm going to keep at it and try and talk to every major policy organ, global and domestic to try and spread the word that and we need to start act focused on this as a, as economics as opposed to religion and that there is an answer and that we've been misled here to think that it's a trade-off it's either us or them it's not that at all and so i i'm optimistic that somebody somehow is going to connect me with greta and that she's going to get in touch with me and go back to the un and make this proposal and then it will become oh, gee, why didn't we think about this before? And I think there's still time to, to save the planet. So that's where I'm coming from. Do you have advice for people about what they can do to help? Let's try and spread the word. Because, you know, you asked me uh, in passing here, Lee, about whether I have any regret. Okay, so I don't have a global audience. I don't even have a huge domestic audience. Uh, I don't have a, a zillion people following me on Twitter Facebook. I do have some following. I've passed up some pretty high, uh, some jobs through time, uh, other uh, universities that would have given me a little higher profile in terms of putting this out that might've gotten more publicity. So I, you know, have some regrets that maybe I should have taken those positions, but uh, on balance, I think I made the right choice. So staying at Boston University, we have a fantastic economics department, one of the top in this country. But if you're at Boston University, it's not like you're at University of Chicago, which I uh, could have gone to back in 89, or Princeton University, which also uh, was interested in hiring me, or Penn. It's just not quite as prestigious. So maybe I would have gotten more, this stuff would have gotten more attention. So that's my regret. You know, the economics community itself is saying, it's not like Bill Nordhaus has called, called me up and said, hey, Larry, you've got the right answer. Uh, let's move in this, let's all move in this direction. Give us your model so I can start running it. And Bill and I go back many decades, so I know him very well, personally. So I, I regret that it's going to take a, a much more effort to get this to the public attention. That's what I really regret. Yeah, if I were at Harvard, I'd have a, I think this would be front page news. Do you have any questions for me? If you're um, fully clear on what I'm conveying, that would be my question. Is what I'm saying understandable? Does it sound like pie in the sky? Do you get the point? that there's the right way and the wrong way to address this problem as an economist. Here's what I hear you saying. I'll try to repeat it in my own words, and you can tell me how far off I am. At a high level, there are winners and losers of climate change. Losers certainly are people in the future because they are going to get a planet that is not very good. Other winners, though, from climate change could be a country like Russia or Canada. So there are winners out there, but like countries like India crazy losers just because of their weather and so on. So there are winners and losers. But overall, there's a big gain if we take action because the future is really bad. So taking action, 
is worth way more than doing nothing because nothing gives us crazy climate adaptation problems and maybe we can't even adapt. So we should tax not solving the problem now. So we should tax production of the problem, which is greenhouse gases. We should tax it pretty heavily. But because there's so much more value overall in the whole equation of putting a tax forward, that benefit should be shared with people and they should be have lower taxes as one methodology for sharing the 500-year or 1,000-year benefit. They should get some of that money now. And the net effect would be that the tax actually would be less than the benefit they would get right now. So they would see benefit now as opposed to only people in the future seeing benefit of the work that we want people to do now. Yeah, that's exactly right. Or another way to say this is that people in the future are going to gain so much from a carbon tax that they, they can compensate people around today for living with a carbon tax. Yeah, but you're okay with what I said. I mean, yeah, yeah. I feel like I get the gist. You got the gist, yeah. That's the main <laughs> thing. Yeah, you did get the gist, and that's a good thing. <laughs> do you have anything else to say? You know, in addition to uh, focusing on carbon policy, I work on a whole range of different topics in economics, uh, academic topics, but also uh, personal topics. I have a new book called Money Magic. It's about personal finance, so it's written for the public. So if you go to kotlikoff.net, you can... Uh, read a bit about the book and see if you're interested in getting it. But I write lots of columns about personal finance. My whole motivation to get into economics was trying to help people and society and countries. So I've been very focused on reforms, tax reform, social security reform, healthcare reform. I've written books on a lot of these topics and also personal finance because economics has a very different approach to personal finance than Wall Street. And we have what we I think is a healthy approach. I think they have a let's try and sell product to people approach. And the the two approaches could not be more uh, different. Well, I'm definitely going to check it out because I care about my personal finance. Good. And I'm always very interested in learning more. And with that, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. You say that you're an optimist about the next generation you care. You do insist. You're a very outspoken economist. On his Nobel Prize, you don't want to douse, but you don't like the God introduced by New House. You know that everybody could be better off. Thank you very much for focusing on climate change finance. Lawrence Kotlikoff, you want to make sure I understand exactly what you meant, that everybody could gain 4.5%. We talked a while about that you do have regret, but the future of our planet, you don't want to bet. Check out your model on kotlikoff.net. If you don't want to have a financial future, that is kind of tragic. Check out your latest book and go get money magic. That's fantastic. I can't believe you did that. Unbelievable. I love how driven Professor Kotlikoff is to see the model that he and his colleagues developed to be actually used to change the conversation about the economics of climate change. If future generations were able to come forward in time, they would definitely agree to paying off some increased debt in order to have people living now take action to help save the future. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com. 
and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Professor Kotlikoff expressed regret at not being more of an influencer because he believes so strongly that his economic model is so important. We all need to be influencers, even if that means talking to our friends, neighbors, coworkers, and relatives. Getting the word out is critical to mitigating climate change. Mm-hmm.